This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Epilogue, A Jamaican Story, Section 1. On September 9th of 1931, a young woman named Daisy Nation gave birth to twin girls. She and her husband Donald were school teachers in a tiny village called Harewood in the central Jamaican parish of St. Catharines. They named their daughters Faith and Joyce. When Donald was told that he had fathered twins, he sank down on his knees and surrendered responsibility for their lives over to God. The nations lived in a small cottage on the grounds of Harewood's Angelican or Anglican church. The schoolhouse was next door, a long single room barn of a building raised on concrete stilts. On some days, there might be as many as 300 children in the room, and on others, less than two dozen. The children would read out loud or recite their times tables. Writing was done on slates. Whenever possible, the classes would move outside, under the mango trees. If the children were out of control, Donald Nation would walk from one end of the room to the other, waving a strap from left to right as the children scrambled back to their places. He was an imposing man, quiet and dignified, and a great lover of books. In his small library were works of poetry and philosophy and novels by writers such as Somerset Moham. Every day he would read the newspaper closely, following the course of the events around the world. In the evening, his best friend, Archdeacon Hay, the Anglican pastor who lived on the other side of the hill, would come over and sit on Donald's veranda, and together they would expound on the problems of Jamaica. Donald's wife, Daisy, was from the parish of St. Elizabeth. Her maiden name was Ford, and her father had owned a small grocery store. She was one of three sisters and was renowned for her beauty. At the age of 11, the twins won scholarships to a boarding school called St. Hilda's near the North Coast. It was an old Anglican private school established for the daughters of English clergy, property owners, and overseers. From St. Hilda's, they applied and were accepted to University College in London. Not long afterward, Joyce went to a 21st birthday party for a young English mathematician named Graham. He stood up to recite a poem and forgot his lines, and Joyce became embarrassed for him, even though it made no sense for her to feel embarrassed because she did not know him at all. Joyce and Graham fell in love and got married. They moved to Canada. Graham was a math professor, and Joyce became a successful writer and a family therapist. They had three sons and built a beautiful house on a hill, off in the countryside. Graham's last name is Gladwell. He is my father, and Joyce Gladwell is my mother. Section 2. That is the story of my mother's path to success, and it isn't true. It's not a lie in the sense that the facts were made up, but it is false in the way that telling the story of Bill Gates without mentioning the, the computers at Lakeside is false, or accounting for Asian math prowess without going back to the rice paddies is false. It leaves out my mother's many opportunities and the importance of her cultural legacy. In 1935, for example, when my mother and her sister were four, a historian named William M. McMillan visited Jamaica. He was a professor at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. Macmillan was a man before his time. He was deeply concerned with the social problems of South Africa's black population, and he came to the Caribbean to make the same argument he had made back home in South Africa. 
chief among Macmillan's concerns were, was Jamaica's educational system. Formal schooling, if you could call it, happened in the wooden barn next door to my grandparents' house, formal schooling, went only to 14 years of age. Jamaica had no public high schools or universities. Those with academic inclinations took extra classes with the head teacher in their teenage years and, with luck, made it into the teacher's college. Those with broader ambitions had to somehow find their way into a private school and from there to a university in the United States or England. But scholarships were few and far between, and the cost of private schooling was prohibitive for all but a privileged few. The bridge from the primary schools to high school, Macmillan later wrote in a blistering critique of England's treatment of its colonies entitled Warning from the West Indies, is narrow and insecure. The school system did nothing for the humblest classes. He went on, quote, If anything, these schools are a factor deepening and sharpening social distinctions, end quote. If the government did not give its people opportunities, he warned, there would be trouble. A year after Macmillan published his book, a wave of riots and unrest swept the Caribbean. Fourteen people were killed and 59 injured in Trinidad. Fourteen were killed and 47 injured in Barbados. In Jamaica, a series of violent strikes shut down the country and a state of emergency was declared. Panicked, the British government took Macmillan's prescriptions to heart and, among other reforms, proposed a series of all-island scholarships for academically-minded students to go to private high school. The scholarships began in 1941. My mother and her twin sister sat for the exam the following year. That is how they got a high school education. They had, had they been born two or three or four years earlier, they might never have gotten a full education. My mother owes the course of her life to the timing of her birth, to the rioters of 1937, and to W.M. McMillan. I described Daisy Nation, my grandmother, as renowned for her beauty. But the truth is that was, careless and con that was a careless and condescending way to describe her. She was a force. The fact that my mother and her sister left Harewood for St. Hilda's was my grandmother's doing. My grandfather may have been an imposing and learned man, but he was an idealist and a dreamer. He buried himself in his books. If he had ambitions for his daughters, he did not have the foresight and energy to make them real. My grandmother did. St. Hilda's was her idea. Some of the wealthier families in the area sent their daughters there, and she saw what a good school meant. Her daughters did not play with the other children of the village. They read. Latin and algebra were necessary for high school, so she had her daughters tutored by Archdeacon Hay. My mother recalls, quote, If you'd asked her about her goals for her children, she said that she wanted us out of there. She didn't feel that the Jamaican context offered enough. And if the opportunity was there to go on and you were able to take it, then to her, the sky was the limit, end quote. When the results came back from the scholarship exam, my, only my aunt was awarded a scholarship. My mother was not. That's another fact that my first history was careless about. My mother remembers her parents standing in the doorway, talking to each other. We have no more money, they discussed. They had paid the tuition for the first term and bought the uniforms and had exhausted their savings. What would they do when the second term fees for my mother came due? But then again, they couldn't send one daughter and not the other. My grandmother was steadfast. She sent both and prayed, and at the end of the first term, it turned out that one of the other girls at the school had won two scholarships, so the second was awarded to my mother. When it came time to go to university, my aunt, the academic twin, 
won what was called a centenary scholarship. The centenary was a reference to the fact that the scholarship was established 100 years after the abolition of slavery in Jamaica. It was reserved for graduates of public elementary schools and, in a measure of how deeply the British felt about honoring the memory of abolition, there was a total of one centenary scholarship awarded every year for the whole island, with the prize going to the top girl and the top boy in alternating years. The year my aunt applied was one of the girl years. She was lucky. My mother was not. My mother was faced with the cost of passage to England, room and board and living expenses, and tuition at the University of London. To get a sense of how daunting that figure was, the value of the centenary scholarship my aunt won was probably as much as the sum of my grandparents' annual salaries. There were no student loan programs, no banks with lines of credit for school teachers out in the countryside. My mother says, if I'd asked my father, he would have replied, we have no money. What did Daisy do? She went to the Chinese shopkeeper in a neighboring town. Jamaica has a very large Chinese population since that since the 19th century has dominated the commercial life of the island. In Jamaica parlance, a store is not a store. It is a Chinese shop. Daisy went to the Chinese shop to Mr. Chance and borrowed the money. No one knows how much she borrowed, although it must have been an enormous amount. And no one knows why Mr. Chance lent it to Daisy, except, of course, that she was Daisy Nation, and she paid her bills promptly, and had taught the Chance children at Harewood School. It was not always easy to be a Chinese child in a Jamaican schoolyard. The Jamaican ch children would taunt the Chinese children, saying, Chinese eat dog. Ugh. Daisy was a kindly and beloved figure, an oasis amid that hostility and Mr. Chance may have felt in her debt. My mother remembers, quote, Did she tell me what she was doing? I didn't even ask her. It just occurred. I just applied to university and got in. I acted completely on faith that I could rely on my mother without even realizing that I was relying on my mother, end quote. Joyce Gladwell own, owes her college education first to W.M. McMillan and then to the student at St. Hilda's who gave up her scholarship and then to Mr. Chance, and then most of all, to Daisy Nation. Section 3. Daisy Nation was from the northwestern end of Jamaica. Her great-grandfather was William Ford. He was from Ireland, and he arrived in Jamaica in 1784, having bought a coffee plantation. Not long after his arrival, he bought a slave woman and took her as his concubine. He noticed her on the docks at Alligator Pond, a fishing village on the south coast. She was an Igbo tribeswoman from West Africa. They had a son, whom they named John. He was, in the language of the day, a mulatto. He was colored, and all of the forge from that point on fell into Jamaica's colored class. In the American South, during that same period, it would have been highly unusual for a white landowner to have such a public relationship with a slave. Sexual relations between whites and blacks were considered morally repugnant. Laws were passed prohibiting miscegenation, the last of which were not struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court until 1967. A plantation owner who lived openly with a slave woman would have been socially ostracized, and any offspring from the Union would have been left in slavery. In Jamaica, though, attitudes were very different. The Caribbean in those days was little more than a massive slave colony. Blacks outnumbered whites by a ratio of more than 10 to 1. 
there were few, if any, marriageable white women. And as a result, the overwhelmingly the overwhelming majority of white men in the West, West Indies had black or brown mistresses. One British plantation owner in Jamaica, who famously kept a precise diary of his sexual exploits, slept with 138 different women in his 37 years on the island, almost all of them slaves, and, one suspects, not all of them willing partners. The In White Saw Mulattoes, the children of those relationships as potential allies, a buffer between them and the enormous number of slaves on the island. Mulatto women were prized as mistresses, and their children, one shade lighter in turn, moved still further up the social and economic ladder. Mulattoes rarely worked in the fields. They lived the much easier life of working in the house. They were the ones most likely to be freed. So many mulatto mistresses were left substantial fortunes in the wills of white property owners that the Jamaica legislator once passed a law capping bequests at 2,000 pounds, which at the time was an enormous sum of money. One 18th century observer wrote, quote, When a European arrives in the West Indies and gets settled or set down for any length of time, he finds it necessary to provide himself with a housekeeper or mistress. The choice he has an opportunity of making is various a black, a tawny, a mulatto, or a mesti, one of which can be purchased for 100 or 150 sterling. If a progeny of young colored children is brought forth, these are emancipated and mostly sent by those fathers who can afford it at the age of three or four years to be educated in England, end quote. This is the world Daisy's grandfather John was born into. He was one generation removed from a slave ship, living in a country best described as an African penal colony. And he was a free man, with every benefit of education. He married another mulatto, a woman who was half European and half Arawak, which is the Indian tribe indigenous to Jamaica, and had seven children. The Jamaican sociologist Orlando Patterson says, quote, These people, the coloreds, had a lot of status. By 1826, they had full civil liberties. In fact, they achieved full civil liberties at the same time as the Jews do in Jamaica. They could vote. They could do anything a white person to, can do. And this is within the context of what was still a slave society. Ideally, they would try to be artisans. Remember, Jamaica has sugar plantations, which are very different from the cotton plantations you find in the American South. Cotton is a predominantly agricultural pursuit. You were picking this stuff, and almost all of the processing was done in Lancashire or the North. Sugar is an agro-industrial complex. You have to have the factory right there because sugar starts losing sucrose within hours of being picked. You had no choice but to have the sugar mill right there. And sugar mills require a wide range of occupations. The coopers, the boiler men, the carpenters, and lots of those jobs were filled by colored people, end quote. It was also the case that Jamaica's English elite, unlike their counterparts in the U.S., had little interest in the grand project of nation-building. They wanted to make their money and go back to England. They had no desire to stay in what they considered a hostile land. So the task of building a new society, with the many opportunities it embodied, fell to the, colored, the coloreds as well. Patterson goes on, quote, By 1850, the mayor of Kingston, the Jamaican capital, was a colored person, so was the founder of the Daily Gleaner, Jamaica's major newspaper. These were colored people, and from very early on, they came to dominate the professional classes. The whites were involved in business or the plantation. 
The people who became doctors and lawyers were these colored people. These were the people running the schools. The bishop of Kingston was a classic brown man. And they weren't the economic elite, but they were the cultural elite, end quote. The chart below shows a breakdown of two categories of Jamaican professionals, lawyers and members of parliament, in the early 1950s. The categorization is by skin tone. White and light refers to people who are either entirely white or, more likely, have some who have some black heritage that is no longer readily apparent. Olive is one step below that, and light brown one step below olive, although the difference between those two shades might not be readily apparent to anything but native Jamaicans. The fact to keep in mind is that in the 1950s, blacks made up about 80% of the Jamaican population, outnumbering coloreds five to one. Look at the extraordinary advantage that their little bit of whiteness gave the colored minority. Having an ancestor who worked in the house and not in the fields, who got full civil rights in 1826, who was valued instead of enslaved, who got a shot at meaningful work instead of being consigned to the sugarcane fields, made all the difference in occupational success two and three generations later. Daisy Ford's ambition for her daughters did not come from nowhere, in other words. She was the inheritor of a legacy of privilege. Her older brother Rufus, with whom she went to live as a child, was a teacher and a man of learning. Her brother Carlos went to Cuba and then came back to Jamaica and opened a garment factory. Her father, Charles Ford, was a produce wholesaler. Her mother, Anne, was a Powell, another educated, upwardly mobile colored family, and the same Powells who would two generations later produce Colin Powell. Her uncle Henry owned property. Her grandfather, John, the same of William Ford and his African concubine, became a preacher. No less than three members of the extended Ford family ended up winning Rhodes Scholarships. If my mother owed W.M. McMillan and the rioters of 1937 and Mr. Chance and her mother Daisy Ford, then Daisy owed Rufus and Carlos and Anne and Charles and John. Okay, confusing. Section 4. My grandmother was a remarkable woman. But it is important to remember that the steady upward path upon which the Fords embarked began with a morally complicated act. William Ford looked upon my great-great-great-grandmother with a desire at a slave market in Alligator Pond and purchased her. The slaves who were not so chosen had short and unhappy lives. In Jamaica, the plantation owners felt it made the most sense to extract the mass maximum possible effort from their human property while the property was still young to work their slaves until they were either useless or dead, and then simply buy another round at the market. They had no trouble with the philosophical contradiction of cherishing the children they had with a slave and simultaneously thinking of slaves as property. Thomas Thistlewood, the plantation owner who cataloged his sexual exploits, had a lifelong relationship with a slave named Fibba, whom, by all accounts, he adored and bore him a son. But to his field slaves, he was a monster, whose preferred punishment for those who tried to run away was what he called Derby's Dose. The runaway would be beaten, and salt, pickle, lime juice, and bird pepper would be rubbed into his or her open wound. Another slave would defecate into the mouth of the miscreant, who would then be gagged for four to five hours. It is not surprising, then, that the brown-skinned classes of Jamaica came to fetishize the lightness. It was their great advantage— they scrutinized the shade of one another's skin and played the color game as ruthlessly in the end as the whites did. 
If, as so often happens, children are of different shades of color in a family, the Jamaican sociologist Fernando Enriquez once wrote, quote, the most lightly colored will be favored at the expense of the others. In adolescence and until marriage, the darker members of the family will be kept out of the way when the friends of the fair or fairer members of the family are being entertained. The fair child is regarded as raising the color of the family, and nothing must be put in the way of its success. That is in the way of a marriage, which will still further raise the color status of the family. A fair person will try to sever social relations he may have with darker relatives. The darker members of a Negro family will encourage the efforts of a very fair relative to pass for white. The practices of intra-family relations lay the foundation for the public manifestation of color prejudice, end quote. My family was not immune to this. Daisy was inordinately proud of the fact that her husband was lighter than she was, but that same prejudice was then turned on to her. Her mother-in-law would say, Daisy's nice, you know, but she's too dark. One of my mother's relatives, I'll call her Aunt Joan, was also well up the color totem pole. She was white and light. But her husband what was, was what in Jamaica is called an Injun, a man with dark complexion and straight, fine black hair. And their husbands were dark like their father. One day, after her husband has died, she was traveling on a train to visit her daughter, and she met and took an interest in a light-skinned man in the same railway car. What happened next is something that Aunt Joan told only my mother, years later, with the greatest shame. When she got off the train, she walked right by her daughter, disowning her own flesh and blood, because she did not want a man so light-skinned and desirable to know that she had borne a daughter so dark. In the 1960s, my mother wrote a book about her experiences— it was entitled Brown Face, Big Master. The brown face referring to herself and the big master referring, in the Jamaican dialect, to God. At one point, she describes a time just after my parents were married when they were living in London and my eldest brother was still a baby. They were looking for an apartment, and after a long search, my father found one in a, in a London suburb. On the day after they moved in, however, the landlady ordered them out. You didn't tell me your wife was Jamaican, she told my father in a rage. In her book, my mother describes her long struggle. My mother describes her long struggle to make sense of this humiliation, to reconcile her experience with her faith. In the end, she was forced to acknowledge that anger was not an option, and that as a colored Jamaican whose family had benefited for generations from the hierarchy of race, she could hardly reproach another for the impulse to divide people by the shade of their skin saying, quote, I complained to God in so many words. Here I was, the wounded representative of the Negro race in our struggle to be accounted free and equal with the dominating class. And God was amused. My prayer did not ring true with him. I would try again. And then God said, have you not done the same thing? Remember this one and that one, people whom you have slighted or avoided or treated less considerately than others because they were different superficially and you are ashamed to be identified with them. Have you not been glad that you are not more colored than you are? Grateful that you are not black? My anger and hate against the landlady melted. I was no better than she was, nor worse for that matter. We were both guilty of the sin of self-regard, the pride and the exclusiveness by which we cut some people off from ourselves." End quote. It is not easy to be so honest about where we are from. It would be simpler for my mother to portray her success as a straightforward triumph 
triumph over victimhood, just as it would be simpler to look at Joe Flom and call him the greatest lawyer ever. Even though his individual achievements are so impossibly intertwined with his ethnicity, his generation, the particulars of the garment industry, and the peculiar biases of the downtown law firms. Bill Gates could accept the title of genius and leave it at that. It takes no small degree of humility for him to look back on his life and say, I was very lucky. And he was. The Mother's Club of Lakeside Academy bought him a computer in 1968. It is impossible for a hockey player, or Bill Joy, or Robert Oppenheimer, or any other outlier for that matter, to look down from their lofty perch and say with truthfulness, I did this all by myself. Superstar lawyers and math whizzes and software entrepreneurs appear at first blush to lie outside ordinary experience, but they don't. They are products of history and community, of opportunity and legacy. Their success is not exceptional or mysterious. It is grounded in a web of advantages and inheritances, some deserved, some not, some earned, some just plain lucky, but all critical to making them who they are. The outlier, in the end, is not an outlier at all. My great-great-great-grandmother was bought at Alligator Pond. That act, in turn, gave her a son, John Ford, the privilege of a skin color that spared him a life of slavery. The culture of possibility that Daisy Ford embraced and put to use so brilliantly on behalf of her daughters was passed on to her by the peculiarities of the West Indian social structure. In my mother's education was the product of the riots of 1937 and the industriousness of Mr. Chance. These were history's gifts to my family, and if the resources of that grocer, the fruits of those riots, the possibilities of that culture, and the privileges of that skin tone had been extended to others, how many more would now live a life of fulfillment in a beautiful house high upon a hill? Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.